Now we're turning to the gospel according to Mark this morning, Mark chapter 4. And if you're using a church Bible, you should find that on page 1006, Mark's gospel chapter 4, and beginning to read at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus uh, has been teaching at length the parable of the sower, explaining why he teaches in parables and using some parables. It's a long day of teaching. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, that's the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, today and for the next couple of Sundays, I want us to look in our morning worship at Mark chapter 5 and the two stories that we find there, the, the one of the exorcism of the legion of demons, the other, the healing of the woman and Jairus' daughter. And both of these are preceded by this very familiar, much-loved story of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee stilling the storm. The three passages belong together in the structure of Mark's gospel, as you would see by looking at chapter 4 and then looking at the beginning of chapter 6. And they form a kind of trilogy of pictures of the Lord Jesus. Uh, They're a little like one of these uh, uh, triptychs that you sometimes see. Sometimes see them on Christmas cards or if you're interested in old altar pieces where three passages from the Bible or three scenes from Scripture will be juxtaposed together because they carry basically the same message in several different ways. And the way I want us to look at these three sections in Mark's gospel is in terms of some words that are used in verse 36 of chapter 4. Leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. They took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. 
And there's something very casual about that. You know, just come as you are, or I'll I'll take you as you are. But what characterizes these three stories about Jesus is that Jesus turns out to be very different from the Jesus that they thought they were taking. Uh, They thought they were taking Jesus as he was, that they were in control of the situation, that Jesus would go with them. And in each of these narratives, we discover that, that Jesus does something not only out of the ordinary, but completely unexpected. And in each instance, we discover that Jesus is often very different from what we thought he was when we took him as he was. And the reason I'm turning to these uh, verses is actually because of a statement that's made at the end of the letter to the Hebrews uh, related to life in our own congregation. What are we to do when there is a transition in leadership? And Hebrews 13 verse 7, the author of Hebrews says, remember those who led you, those who taught you the Word of God. And then he, he, he switches into a different gear. He says, and remember what I've been saying to you all the way through this letter. And he just suddenly says, Jesus Christ. doesn't introduce it. He just says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And by saying that, he, he, he isn't finding a grand way of saying Jesus is eternal. What he's saying is, the way Jesus was yesterday, that is, in the days of his flesh, an expression Hebrews uses about the days of Jesus' ministry. What Jesus was in the days of his ministry, Jesus still is, and he will be like that forever. And this is a great clue to reading the Gospels. Perhaps it's the greatest clue to reading the Gospels. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, when they often tend to be diverted to the people around Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in the assurance that just as He was then, so He is today. So everything that we discover He is and does That's true of him today. And this is the way in which the Gospels bring us into a knowledge of Christ and fellowship with Christ. And here, obviously, in this passage, Jesus appears to his disciples as the ruler of all nature. But back to this phrase, they took Jesus just as he was. It's an almost perfect description of what it means to become a Christian. Indeed, you you might say, if this has never been true of you, then the chances are you are still not a Christian. Becoming a Christian is taking Jesus just as he is, and then beginning to discover who he really is as he works in your life to change you as he ministers to you, as he brings you to know him better. 
And it's very interesting, right at the end of this passage, this passage, at least in my experience, has often been preached as though the message was, Jesus stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and you can still the storm in your heart. That, that, that's true, but it's got nothing to do with this passage. Because you look at how this passage ends, Jesus stills the storm in the Sea of Galilee, and in the process, he creates a storm in the hearts of the disciples. It's, it's kind of obvious when you see it. We're told in verse 41, they were filled with great fear. They feared with great fear, is what the text says. And they said to one another, and you see the movement that's taken place in their lives? Well, we took him just as he was. But now that we discover who he is, we're actually asking the question, well, who is he? Who is he? If even the wind and the waves, the sea, obey him. So who is he? What's he like? <laughs> if you're from Aberdeenshire, fit like. What's he like? Well, this morning I want us to notice three things that Jesus is like. He's like this in the Gospels as they take him just as he is, and he's like this today. The first thing that we ought to notice is that as they go into the storm, it was Jesus himself who led them into the difficulty. Now, the first impression we have in this passage when we read it is that they took Jesus just as he was. And that kind of stands out. But that's not actually all that the passage says. What this passage teaches us is that they were in the boat and went into the storm because of what Jesus had said. And it's very interesting in all the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that record this incident. They all place enormous emphasis on this, that being a disciple means, yes, you take Jesus just as he is, but what you discover is that Jesus takes you in the way he wants to go. And I think I can imagine that at least some of these men assumed this is what they were doing. In the boat, Jesus wants to go over to the other side. He's a, what did he do for a living? He was a carpenter. He was a, a, a worker in wood and, and perhaps other things. And some of these men at least were skilled fishermen. Almost certainly Mark's gospel is Simon Peter's eyewitness account of what happened. And there are little details in Mark's narrative here that indicate he, uh, he is telling things the other gospel writers aren't telling because he was with Jesus in the boat. Jesus is asleep in the stern. Uh, there are other boats with them. Um, but the emphasis here is that it's, it's Jesus who is taking the lead, that this is his plan and not their plan, that this is his initiative and not their initiative. And it's always the case, no matter what we do, the initiative is always his. And the thing that is difficult to take in is that the reason they were in the storm was because they did exactly what Jesus said. 
Can I say that again? The, the reason they were in the storm was because they did exactly what Jesus said when they took him as he was. And the point, of course, is he's still that way. It's been said to me on occasion when, when something important has happened in my life and things have worked out well, uh, someone will say uh, spiritually and well-meaning, it's just like the Lord to do that, isn't it? To smooth the way. And the truth is, it's just like the Lord to smooth things and to help us. But it's also just like the Lord to do this. And so as believers, we do not go around second-guessing the notion that if we are obedient to the Lord, everything will simply fall into place in our lives. And the reason we don't make that assumption is that may not be His purpose. We cannot second-guess Him. We do not control Him. We may feel we are taking Jesus just as He is but in the process, he is wanting to teach us just exactly who he is, often by doing things we would never have chosen. This is why throughout the world today, the, the often described health, wealth, and happiness gospel spreads, because that's the kind of Jesus that you can pick up and put in your pocket. I take Jesus just as he is, and Jesus gives me everything I want. But the underlying truth of this story is, I take Jesus just as He is, and He gives me everything He wants. And at least on this occasion, what He wanted was to lead these disciples into the storm. So that's principle number one. When we take Jesus just as He is, He never leaves us just as we were. Now, often it's said, Jesus loves me just the way I am. And the truth is really, Jesus loves you despite the way you are. But He has no intention whatsoever of leaving you that way. And if He's going to transform you, then, as these disciples discovered, if He's going to use you in the future, there will be times when Jesus will lead us into difficulty. So, what's He doing? Well, the second lesson that emerges from this passage is that essentially Jesus is testing their faith. And this emerges, of course, in their panic as the, as the wind gets up on this uh, inland sea and the storm comes and the, the water we uh, discover is breaking into the boat so that the boat is already filling and uh, Jesus is asleep on the cushion and they wake him up. And what does Jesus say to them? Verse 40. Why are you afraid? Well, that's a dumb question to begin with, isn't it? Why are you afraid? But it's an interesting question because Jesus isn't dumb. He's really saying to them, you know, 
you shouldn't actually be afraid. I didn't know, or certainly didn't remember, that we were going to be reading that extraordinary passage of Paul's sea journey. Because you notice exactly the same thing happens. Uh, That that, uh, in this marvelous way, the, the centurion trusts the man who knows how to navigate the Mediterranean instead of trusting the man who knew God. And at the end of the day, there's only one person left on the boat as it's falling into the sea, and as eventually they, they make shipwreck. There's only, there's only one person who's calm, and, and he's a tent maker. But you see, he's a tent maker who has learned to trust in the Lord. He, he, he apparently was not afraid. And he was not afraid because he knew that the Lord was with them in the boat. And this is what Jesus is driving at. In a way, he's saying to them, without being in your face about it, you, you took me just as I was. But you, you hardly know anything about me. You, you, you assumed because you were my disciple that you trusted me. But it's in this situation that it's become clear how little you actually trust me. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And it's interesting, the way this comes out is because of the question they ask him in verse 38, the second half. They woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, virtually all of the translations translate these words that way. But the Greek language, at least in those days, had a way of signaling in the way a question was asked whether the answer expected was yes or no. We can do the same thing, you know. Uh, You don't care, do you? Or you do care, don't you? And some of us get very flustered with those questions, and we say yes when we meant no, and we say no when we meant yes. And it's very interesting here, the way this question is asked, do you not care that we are perishing, is actually, it's, you care that we are perishing, don't you, Jesus? It kind of expects the answer yes. So why do the translations translate it as though expected the answer no. Because I think there was a difference between the way they put the question and what was really going on in their hearts. What was really going on in your hearts is, you don't care about us. Why do you not care about us? Look at you, you're sleeping. And uh, the water had blinded them not only to his identity. I mean, he was, after all, in the world because he cared for them. The only reason he was with them in the boat was because he cared for them. And it had blinded them to who he was. He was, he was the creator of the sea. He was the ruler of all nature, and therefore they could trust him. So what's he doing? 
Well, he's, he's exposing their lack of faith, isn't he? He's showing them in this crisis that the level of trust in him they presumed they had, they didn't really have, that their faith was very fragile. Now, here's the question, why does he do this in such a dramatic way? I mean, he could just after all said to them, you guys think you really trust me, but you know, you don't. Believe me, you don't really trust me. Why does he do it this way? Because he doesn't always do it this way. I think the reason he does it this way is because of what he means to do with these men. These are the men on whom the whole future of the Christian church is going to depend at the human level. And if that's the case, Jesus has to make something of them. And it seems to be characteristic of God's working throughout the Bible that if God means to do something with us, He first of all needs to make something of us. And He makes something of us, not by cushioning us around with cotton wool, but by leading us into difficulty in order to test our faith and in order to expose to ourselves the, the weakness and frailty of our faith or to expose to ourselves that where we thought we were strong, we are actually really weak. I mean, that's, I think that's the point of the fact that this takes place not up a mountainside, but in the sea, because this is familiar territory to at least four of these men, because they've been, they've been trained on the Sea of Galilee. They know every inch of the Sea of Galilee. They are masters of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is not a master of the Sea of Galilee. And, and they assume that's, that's, that's where their strength is. That's where their great contribution to Jesus is. And Jesus does something that God clearly had done already in the pages of Scripture. He shows us that very often what we think are our strengths turn out to be our weaknesses, or what other people think are our strengths turn out to be our weaknesses. Often think of the prophet Isaiah in this connection. What's the man doing who is, he's not only the greatest contemporary preacher in Jerusalem, presumably, in a way he was the greatest preacher in the whole of the Old Testament the greatest Jewish preacher there ever was until the appearance of John the Baptist in close, close proximity to Jesus. And you remember what he says in the temple when he meets with God? Oh, my friends, this is a key lesson if God is going to use us. He says, my problem lies in the very instrument, in the very gifts that God has most used in my life. Stunning, isn't it? That where, where sin weaves itself into us, and uh, those of us who preach, we know this only too well. This is what God is constantly dealing with in our lives, bringing us to a consciousness that the instrument of the strength of our giftedness 
has been polluted by our sinfulness and, and weakened. And we need to be brought to say, Lord, I'm a man of… It's not just that I dwell among a people of unclean lips, but I'm a man of unclean lips. Because God, like Jesus here, wants to bring Isaiah as Jesus wants to bring the disciples to know their frailty. Because you see, here's the kicker, isn't it? We want to know that we really are men and women of strong faith, but in order to have strong faith, we first of all need to discover how weak our faith actually is. And that doesn't happen when life is plain sailing, does it? That's when we assume our faith is strong. But Jesus is testing their faith because it's only when stress and pressure is brought to bear upon our faith that our faith will be strengthened to conquer in the next test. And that's what he's, he's marvelously doing this. He's, he's emptying them in order to fill them. He wants well-tested servants to lead his church. I wonder if you noticed the man mentioned in Romans chapter 16, I think it's verse 10, that uh, David was preaching on that passage last Sunday morning. And it's a man who just suddenly appears and he disappears. He gets one sentence in the whole Bible and nobody knows uh, where he came from or where he's going. Uh, his name is Apelles. But Paul says, greet Apelles, approved in Christ. And that approved, that's like, you know, that's like the British seal of approval. What's the British seal of approval mean? We've tested this. And you sometimes see in these documentaries how they test things, you know, what they do with washing machines, you know, all the, all, and, and cars and tires the rigor they put them through, the battering they get, because they want to be sure that the thing, the workmanship, will stand up. And that was Apelles, tested and approved. He had the kind of Trinity stamp on him. I mean, he must have been, don't you think he was something that, that Paul recognized that about him? How did Paul even know him? Maybe he just knew him by reputation. But his reputation was he had been, he'd been tested, he'd been tried, and he'd been brought over to the other side, and he'd… I mean, how do, how do you know this about somebody? And, and the truth is, usually you know it, don't you? You can, you can tell the difference between the, the character that has been produced by ease and superficiality and always having everything you need that's never, that's never tasted sorrow and somebody who's, who's been through the mill. We, the place I think I've most experienced this has often been meeting pastors from other countries who, who have nothing, who have been through so much suffering. And, and you feel you're not, you're not really worthy to to tie up their shoelaces because they've been tested and approved. 
And there's something for us here, isn't it, you know, that, that God would send us an appellees to, to, be, to be our minister. Whatever, whatever his gifts were, that, that we just knew he'd been tested and approved. Um, and, and that would mean we could, we could open our hearts to him. We could go to him. There would be a sense of connectedness between the word that was preached and life that was lived. And this is exactly, I think, what Jesus is, is doing in these disciples. He's bringing them into difficulty in order to test their faith. But he doesn't just test their faith as though he were a cynic. The third thing you notice in this passage is that he brings them into difficulty and tests their faith because he wants to show them his majesty and glory. And what a moment this must have been when, when Jesus is, is roused from his sleep. I mean, so he, he must have been really tired, don't you think? Although, you know, you know, we speak about the sleep of the innocent. You know, maybe if you have never sinned, you're able to just put your head down on the pillow and, and in every situation just… But he must have been tired as well. And, and they wake him and and he shows them his majesty in a, in a, in a unique way because these are, these are the powers of nature. There, there's nothing more terrifying, surely, than uh, to be in a storm in the sea in a small boat and to know that you're absolutely at the mercy of the storm. And that's why they cry out, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing here? And Jesus stills the storm and calms the waves. Actually, the, the, the verb that's used here is like he rebukes them. He masters them. And they see his glory. You know, I sometimes wonder, as Jesus was about to fall asleep, knowing surely what he was doing, do you think the thought might have crossed his mind? I wonder how much sleep I'm going to get before they're, they're shouting in my ear, uh, Master, get up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Um, he was in such complete control of the situation. But the other thing I sometimes wonder is, um, because my eyes are often on Simon Peter, I often wonder if Peter was just standing on the edge of the Sea of Galilee there when Jesus says, okay, let's get into the boat and over to the other side, and was thinking, but was too cowardly to say what in other situations he would say, well, I'm not going. You know, I've been around this sea all of my life, and as sure as I am here, there there are just all the makings of a storm today. This is just the kind of day when these storms come suddenly on the Sea of Galilee, and I'm not going. And you can imagine him justifying himself as they, as they sail across the sea. I mean, it's hardly a sea. It's just a lake or a, a loch. And sees the, the weather coming in and uh, thinking, you should have listened to me. This is why I didn't go. 
the truth of the matter, he would have lived the rest of his life without seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's in these dark moments that he shows his glory most clearly. Because we're so inclined to interpret the bright moments as though we were as though they were moments of our own creation. And so we can kind of depend upon ourselves and our faith is fine. But now, in a very special way here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus rises and shows them his glory. And these disciples who took Jesus as he was are left wondering who he really is. Because although for some of them at least their training had been on the Sea of Galilee, their education had been in memorizing the Old Testament. I mean, that was, you know, my generation, you know, you remember what religious education was like in primary school, was memorizing great chunks of the Bible because the teachers had no idea what to do with you. But they thought memorization was good for the brain cells. And so here, I came from a family that didn't start going to church until after I became a Christian. I memorized the Sermon on the Mount. I memorized parts of the Psalms. I, not by choice, I memorized Isaiah chapter 53, although my teacher didn't know that that really begins at the end of chapter 52. And it was the same with these men. And what these men knew from their memory banks of the only education they'd had, was that only God does this kind of thing. Only God, as it were, calms the sea at creation. Only by the power of God and through His rod does Moses rule over the Red Sea and bring the people through. Only the power of God brings Jonah through the storm. The Psalms are full of this kind of thing. The Old Testament is full of this kind of thing. For, for a Jew in Palestine, the sea represented everything that would threaten them and engulf them that none of them was able to master. And here this Jesus that they took just as He was rises in the boat and shows His divine power and stills the storm. And chapter 5, which of course wasn't chapter 5 when Mark wrote his gospel, begins as chapter 4 is really supposed to end. They came to the other side of the sea. And Peter must have told this story often in his preaching. When you go home, you can turn it very easily into the first person singular, and you'll get a sense of what it must have been like for Simon Peter to tell this story. I was there. I saw this happen. I thought I was taking Jesus just as He was. And then I realized that He wanted to teach me who He really was. Such a great Savior, so confident in His power to save and to keep, that He would actually lead me into these difficulties, that He would expose the frailty of my faith because He wanted to build me up and strengthen me for the future. 
and then to show me his glory. And I often think in this connection about uh, what was the great crisis in the life of Simon Peter in the Acts of the Apostles. You remember how he's stuck in the jail there. And we're told by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles that he was going to be taken out the next day. That is not released, but taken out almost certainly to be condemned and perhaps executed. And God sent an angel to rescue him. I wonder if you remember what Simon Peter was doing when the angel arrived at the prison. The angel had to do exactly what the disciples did in the storm in the Sea of Galilee. The angel had to say to him, Peter, get up. We're going. And even those who prayed for him couldn't believe that the Lord Jesus had brought him through. And so already within the pages of the New Testament, we find the apostle who taught uh, in First Peter, don't, don't be surprised at suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, because this is the way God tests you. This is the way Jesus strengthens you. This is the way Jesus makes you a man or a woman who is approved by God and useful in His service. So, brothers and sisters, we've taken Jesus just as He was, and that's just how He is. But we're all, by God's grace, in this uh, great pilgrimage of discipleship, discovering that Jesus turns out to be something far greater than who we thought He was when we first took Him. And if we are not Christians, this is the first step. We take Him just as He is, as He presents Himself to us and says, come on now, I'm going to, I'm going to take you on. And we discover that the Christian life is a life full of adventure that eventually ends when He brings us over to the other side. It's wonderful to think about some of those who have sat with us in this place who are now on the other side and to remember them and how God worked in them and what God showed them, how they were approved unto God and we learned from them and how He wants to do the same in us too. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to thank You for Your Word, for its living character, but especially today to thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ and the knowledge that Your Word gives us that all that He was then to His disciples, He has not changed. He is still the same today as He was yesterday and He'll be the same tomorrow and all our tomorrows. And we pray as You show us how You work in our lives through Your Word that we may learn many of these lessons from Your Word. And when You teach them to us through the providences that You bring into our lives, we pray that we may discover then too 
that our Lord Jesus is greater than we ever imagined him to be. And this we pray in his name. Amen.